You're listening to the Into the Dust podcast, hosted by Joe Moore, presented by Valley of Sports. Joining today's episode, ARA Director of Competition, Preston Osborne. Hey everyone, it's Ryan from No Credentials Required to talk to you about one of our newest partners at Belly Up Sports, SeatGeek. Yeah, live sports is great on television, but the feeling of being at the arena is a priceless experience. That's why our friends at SeatGeek are there to help you find the best tickets at the best prices. Not only can you get tickets to sporting events, we can also get tickets to concerts, comedy shows, musicals, and more. Search for your desired event now at SeatGeek.com, enter promo code BELLYUPSPORTS at checkout, and you save 20 bucks off your first purchase. SeatGeek. Life's an event. We have the tickets. So how are you doing today? I'm doing all right. Uh, you know, I'm not sure when this podcast is going to be coming out, but uh, we're in the week of Olympus when, when we're talking, and so kind of in the final couple of days of preparation, uh, feels a bit weird on my end because I actually just had uh, my second son born here a couple of weeks ago. And so I'm not traveling to Olympus and it's not often I miss, miss a national event. So uh feel a bit disconnected. Congrats on your uh, new son because we this was meant to happen uh, pretty much like two, three weeks ago. But yeah. then you had to be in the hospital with, your son's mother, so we couldn't record it. Yeah, so yeah. My my wife went into labor early. I guess the uh, little guy wanted to to come early uh, April rather than middle of April. But uh, I think it's a good lesson because you can never plan on a kid's schedule, anyways. So uh, just get me ready for that. Fair enough. Um, so you said you're not going to Olympus, so will you still be doing your kind of job of like like directing the competition and that sort of stuff or will that be handed off to somebody else yeah i mean really i hold kind of a different role at the events themselves um you know obviously all the events are organized by a local group and so um you know many of those roles are filled by the event organizers you know as far as my end on on the ara side um you know, I'm kind of a competitor liaison and, and I help with uh, some of the rally safe tracking as far as in race control and, and from the safety side of things. So I'll still be doing some of that from afar. Um, you know, even though I'm not physically there, it's hard for me to not want to be a part of it. Uh, so, so yeah, I'll, I'll still be watching dots move on the screen uh, from the comfort of my house, but uh, I won't be physically there. So. I, I would say maybe I get more sleep than a usual rally weekend, but I can tell you that's not the case. <laughs> I, I don't think there's many people who get much sleep on a on a rally weekend, including myself. No, um, no. You know, when I took this role, I thought maybe uh, I was going to get more sleep than I used to when I was competing. And uh, somehow I get less. I, I don't know how it worked out that way, but uh, that's the reality of it. Well, well, for me as a writer, like this week's absolute chaos because I'm doing – Olympus and uh, WRC Croatia. Yeah. So time zones are just a wonderful, wonderful thing. Yeah, it basically <laughs> turns into a 24-hour day, doesn't it? Pretty much. New Zealand was that for me, actually. When uh, Rally New Zealand was on last year, I pretty much, I don't know how much sleep I even got. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll definitely be paying attention in the middle of the night more than I usually do the, do to the WRC event since I'll be up anyways. But, um, you know, for us, since we obviously do a lot of work with Rally Safe and, and they're pretty plugged into our events, um, 
trying to coordinate time zones with him is always a bit difficult, and especially when it shares a weekend with the WRC event. So, um, speaking of rally safe, what what made you guys bring like start to use rally safe in the ARA? Sure. So, you know, when I joined the ARA in in 2020, um, you know, I kind of set out my goals and and what I wanted to see the direction of the series uh, to be and, and kind of my thoughts and really a huge gap that I had seen as a competitor was seeing so many other series around the world using some sort of GPS tracking, um, you know, also different versions of, of timing um, and, and really just the core experience if you're not at the race itself. So, you know, say from a spectator or, or a fan perspective, or, you know, really from, for me, it was, uh, my wife and my mom trying to follow along on the races was was really hard. And so when I started looking and, and researching products, you know, I think I ended up looking at uh, 12 different GPS tracking systems. Um, kind of all roads ended up pointing back towards RallySafe because there was not many products out there that kind of ticked all of the boxes uh, that RallySafe did. So obviously for us, primarily RallySafe is a is a safety system. Um, you know, our response time to incidents has dropped dramatically in events that we have rally safe, just because we do get so much information uh, pretty much immediately. You know, anytime there's a crash or, or even just a stopped car, um, you know, we get an alert in race control. So, so, you know, I had seen the need for it and again, did research as far as what products were out there, what was cost effective, um, and, you know, in Canada, they had used it for several years at that point. Um, and I had used it at, at um, a couple of Canadian events. And so I had seen it firsthand and, um, and it was kind of no brainer for me. And then really it was understanding and justifying the cost that was involved with a system like that, because obviously there, there is a cost with it. And um, so what we did is we actually... Um, worked a deal with Rally Safe and and had it for Snowdrift and Hundred Acre Wood uh, that ARA covered 100% of the cost of, just to get it in the hands of other competitors because I feel like there's a lot of misconceptions as far as what the what the system actually was and and the features it had and the benefits that it had, and so getting it in the hands of competitors uh, kind of sold itself. So this season the ARA brought in new rules. Um, why were those changes made? Yeah, there's a couple of different reasons for it. So, um, you know, over the last few years, we had uh, Barry McKenna bringing his car over, um, you know, Ken Block in, in the Hyundai last year. Um, but really, the, the speeds of the cars were getting not only to the point of kind of ridiculousness as far as the speeds they're hitting and, and average speeds. And, you know, part of that is due to the character of the roads we have in the U.S. and, and the roads that the events have for use. Um, but also it came down to the cars themselves. Uh, you know, Subaru's always kind of been the... Um, big name around but when you have people like Barry and Ken bringing proper weapons uh, into the series like that then you know obviously Subaru had to step up their game to match and and really it created an arms race and when Barry brought his car over in 2021 um, at 100 Acre Wood it was kind of a wake-up call just uh, to understand how fast of a car could actually be brought into 
our series. And the reality was that's a WRC level chassis, um, you know, making uh, arguably more power than the WRC cars were because of the restrictor size that we had. Um, I guess not more power, but similar power to what the WRC cars would have. Um, and, and really the major difference was he was using a manual sequential shift rather than the paddle shift and, and some different differentials and some things of that nature. But um Again, it really just kind of created an arms race and, and it was becoming unattainable to really anyone. And so we actually had a meeting with some of the top teams in the sport um, that summer and just kind of said, hey, you know, this car is here now. And and Barry was part of, of that meeting and and just said, what direction do we want the sport to go? And, you know, after some conversation back and forth and, and getting different perspectives from different people that were, that were at this meeting, um, really it was decided that we need to kind of scale back um, the speed of the cars and, and the development costs of the cars and, and kind of bring it to a lower speed and, and lower performance. And really what we saw to that was a good target for the Rally 2 cars. And so that was kind of where we set our sights. So in, in, in terms of, I know it's only been two events, well, really one event, if you consider anything, because Snowdrift isn't really a <laughs> yeah. good Snow, considering. Snow, Snowdrift really doesn't tell us much. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty much just, hey, that guy did good on, uh, on ice. Yeah. yeah. Bravo. Good, good for you. Um, anyway, what, have you seen any significant changes? Like I know you just I know you told me last night you'd already or you just finished the uh data sheets for hundred acres. So have you seen any significant changes yet or Yeah, it's it's pretty interesting. So with Ken's car coming last year, um, you know, the the Hyundai WRC car, that obviously ruffled a lot of feathers. Um as far as the capability of that car and um, and as far as the changes that were made to it to, to bring it to our series, um, with the talk that we had about, you know, kind of downscaling the performance of, of the cars for the series, that one was even further away of where we wanted to go. But it was also with the understanding that it was only going to be for last year. And so part of what we're looking at last year was uh, balancing the performance of the cars. Um, and so... A lot of people don't know, but we get pretty ex- a pretty exceptional amount of data from RallySafe um, as far as the system goes. So when the units are on the stage, we're getting GPS pings um, upwards of every tenth of a second. And so I can see car performance pretty clearly, uh, you know, using RallySafe data, at, at least, you know, what is car performance versus what is driver performance. So things like straight line speed and braking performance and obviously top speed and, um, and, you know, things of that nature. And so we started really looking at the data last year and, and seeing what the speed of the, not only the Hyundai, but Barry's car and, and Subaru's car and seeing what the performance was for those. And so looking even at a hundred acre wood, uh, this year, you know, it's hard to compare 100 acre wood last year to this year just because the conditions were so much, uh, so much different. But even what I'm seeing from the vehicle performance side of things, uh, there is definitely a change. And so now, really, the question is uh, if it went far enough or not for for those top cars. So I know you did a 
uh, an interview with Dirtfish two or three weeks ago. And what what you kind of said has kind of, in a way, been twisted into something else. Um, I, I, I had actually read that article. And you pretty much said that there might be changes after Olympus that is now kind of turned into some people are seeing that as there will be changes. So could you possibly explain that more in depth of what might change or if there will be changes? Yeah, of course. After Olympus. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, really from our perspective, you know, our intention has been, um, hopefully pretty clear as far as we want the open cars and the RC two cars to be fighting for overall wins together. And that doesn't mean that they're the same car, but rather looking at, uh, the performance potential is kind of the term that we use of what the different classes are. And as you said, snowdrift, I can't really glean much information from that just since it's such a one-off. Um, but even then, you know, hundred acre wood is, uh, usually one of, if not the fastest rally on our calendar. And so again, uh, it's hard to really get usable vehicle data from that, um, just since it is kind of different. So we don't anticipate making any changes, especially as soon as after Olympus. Uh, really what we're looking at is Olympus is probably going to be the first event where we can really get good data uh, as far as what the performance looks like between the two classes. And, you know, that's always going to be hard because, as I said before, vehicle data is vehicle data, but, uh, you know, I can't necessarily judge cornering speed, um, chassis to chassis without equal drivers. And, um, you know, there's just too much unknowns to look at that type of data, but we can at least get uh, pretty good information from that rally safe data to see where the cars stack up against each other. Two or three weeks ago, we're, we're going in back in time here again, at the same <laughs> time. Um, there was the WRC uh, test event in Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Well, what are your thoughts on the WRC potentially returning to the U S? Yeah, I, I think obviously at the end of the day, I'm a fan of the sport and, and that's even like us talking about downscaling the performance of, of the cars in the series. Uh, that does break my heart a little bit <laughs> as, as a fan of the sport, but uh, kind of what we see as, as a necessary change. And, and when it comes to something like a WRC event, um, it, it would be great to see one here in the U.S. Um, you know, at the same time, obviously, we want to make sure that any event we have is representative of the potential we have here in the U.S. Um, and so, you know, we being the ARA and, and USAC are pretty involved and active with that organizing group that's trying to bring the WRC event to the U.S. And so really it's just making sure that they're set up for success um, and are going to be able to put on an event that we're proud of. So in, in terms of if the WRC were to return to America, what could that potentially mean for the ARA? I think it's really just eyeballs on the sport. Um, you know, it's a big thing. Obviously, everyone that's involved in rallying the U.S. is incredibly passionate. Um, but it is a pretty small sport, all things considered. And when you look at the size of the sport elsewhere in the world, um, you know, it's, it's uh, one of the largest sports, certainly motorsports out there. Um, you know, okay. It doesn't quite rival F1, but, um, as far as international motorsports go, it's, it's extremely popular. And for us to be able to have that many eyeballs, even just on 
one event within the U.S. Um, it will show people that, hey, there is rally in the U.S. and and hopefully gets more people involved, not only from a competitor standpoint, but also from volunteers and organizers and and uh, even just spectators. I mean, it's um, it's difficult to make a living in any sort of motorsport, um, but even I can tell you coming from smaller teams, you know, that I was competing in, uh, even just getting a somewhat low level sponsorship to get your tires covered or, you know, get parts covered, uh, can make a pretty big difference in you being able to race. And, um, and the more people we have, uh, understanding and, and seeing rally is going to help those sponsorship conversations be a bit easier. You know, we, so, we always joke that rally is the coolest motorsport that no one knows about in the U S <laughs> I, I remember, like, this was a month or two ago. This was a while back. Um, me and another couple of guys were talking about, like, just the advertising and just how big the sport of rally actually is in America. Mm-hmm. And we were saying, like, you know, without – there, there's a population, but, like, Ken's popularity and Travis's popularity and so on and so forth really helped – help bring eyeballs onto rally in America. Oh yeah. Like I, I know speaking for myself, I wouldn't be into this stuff if it wasn't for Ken. I wouldn't sure. know what rally is. Um, sure. So, you know, yeah, I'll, I'll tell you even from the ARA side, um, you know, there's a big difference for the races that Ken and Travis were at versus not. And, you know, when Ken came back into the sport and ran the full series last year, um, it, it really did change the metrics that we were looking at from a social media standpoint. And, you know, obviously terrible tragedy for what happened to him uh, beginning of the year and, and affects the rally community as a whole. And, and Travis stepping back from rally this year um, makes that gap even larger. So. So what's it kind of been like this year, not having, you know, the two, two of the biggest names in American rally and in rally in general mm-hmm. and Ken Block and Travis Pastrana. Well, it's, I think it's a couple of things that change. Um, you know, first is just from the pure competition side of things, uh, you know, Brandon Semenek and, and Vermont sports car, uh, really don't have much competition outside of themselves. Um, obviously, we'd love to see that change. And, and usually we at least have competition between a couple of the Subarus battling for a championship. But, um, you know, we'll see if it changes throughout the season. But we, we don't see much of that now. You know, Barry has been obviously the, the competition for Brandon at 100 Acre Wood. But I know he's not running a full season. And so he'll only be here for, for a few events. So, you know, first we lose that competition side. And then, as you said, from a media and, and just purely eyeballs on the sport, um, you know, the millions and millions of followers that, that Ken and Travis have um, won't necessarily be paying attention to rally the same way. And so on one side, it's it'll be good because we can spend more energy um, highlighting some of the other competitors within, within the series. Um, but uh, you know, it's, it's, again, there's, there's a hole there when we can't have Ken block in a headline or Travis Pastrana in a headline and, and know that we're going to get so many more clicks uh, just by him being involved. And, and you mentioned like, you know, clicks and stuff. 
in, in terms of like article viewership last year, mm-hmm. Ken, Ken, anytime I use Ken's name, instantly like a hundred more views on the articles. It was, it, it's something that I didn't abuse too much when I didn't try to. The only other, the only other driver who some for some reason competed with Ken's articles is Semnuck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I, I, I think. It's funny because, uh, to be honest, I was naive to to Brandon's background. You know, I know he'd done a fair bit of mountain biking and um, and obviously competed on on that before he got into rally. Uh, but until I went and actually looked up who Brandon Semenik is, I mean, he is arguably one of the most famous um, mountain bikers in the world. <laughs> and so, from an action sports star, uh, he's he's up there, but. Again, I, I think with how humble he is and, and he's never really in your face about that, um, you just kind of underestimate. And, and like I said, I did the same thing when I first got to know who he was. Brandon is one of those guys that's like, that he's kind of in a way, he still knows how to connect with fans on a level that they understand. They aren't, he doesn't act like he's above anybody else. And mm-hmm. That that's a great thing that I love about the sport is there's few people who actually act like they're above anybody else in within the sport, whether it be media or the fans or anything. Yeah. Yeah, those those people tend to get pushed out pretty quick. You know, I think the benefit we have of rally being a bit smaller in the US is that means the community of competitors and, and kind of key people involved with rally are pretty small. And because of that, we all try to take pretty good care of each other. And so people with those types of attitudes tend to kind of be a flash in the pan. Because, you know, Travis was always amazing with the fans. Um, you know, there there was times where I was, like, dragging him away from the fans. of like, dude, you got to go. Like, MTC is <laughs> happening now. And, uh, and, you know, he's trying to sign that one last autograph because – you know, him, Brandon and, and Ken, you know, the top guys there all understood that the only reason why they're doing what they're doing at that level is because of the people that show up to, to come watch. And, you know, I think that's something that's underappreciated by uh, some of the people in the community is, you know, I, I, I hate it on a macroeconomic level as far as trickle down economics, but um, you know, when it comes to, to motorsports, things like that matter um, because then it's more money for the events so that they can do more for their volunteers and, and that helps recruiting them, um, you know, more successful. And, and obviously on a series level, you know, having Travis, Ken, Brandon, those types of names involves uh, makes our sponsorship discussions um, usually more successful. So uh, it's, it's one of those where they understand the game and, and, uh, and they know how to play it, but I, I do think it's genuine. So you talked about like sponsorships. Um, one of the bigger changes, not being rules, um, was the series sponsor changing from Dirt Dirtfish to Green APU. Um, with Dirtfish being gone as the title sponsor, that also means less media coverage from them. How has that affected the ARA so far? If you can say, sure, sure. You know, I think for us, we're still finding our foothold, um, you know, fully in the media uh, after, you know, Dirtfish is no longer a title sponsor. But, um, you know, I think 
changes this year we've done is we've rolled out our live stream platform and, and still kind of growing and developing that. And, um, you know, that type of investment in technology and, and change wouldn't have been possible without bringing Green APU in. Um, you know, Art, the owner of Green APU, he's been involved in Rally for decades at this point um, and is obviously extremely passionate about Rally. And, you know, Patrick, his son is racing and, and so for, for Art, he really sees the potential of what Rally could be in the U.S. and, and basically wanted to invest in it. And, um, and so he approached us, you know, partway through last year and, and kind of talked to us about some ideas. And, and ultimately, uh, we were able to strike a deal so that we could hopefully grow the sport and, and be able to give back to some of our competitors, too. So you mentioned the ARA live streaming. Mm-hmm. What has been the, like, how has that worked so far for you guys? Yeah, like I said, I think it's still a work in progress. Um, we, we knew the challenges going into it, but we haven't, we hadn't really had the dollars to be able to invest in some of the technology um, to, to solve the connectivity issues. I mean, that's really the biggest problem that we have at events is obviously we're kind of racing in the middle of nowhere a lot of times. And, and also the route is spread out over, um, you know, tons of miles. And so being able to have different cameras set up and, and be able to live stream and commentate and, um, you know, produce all of it live, uh, it, it takes not only technology, but people and expertise. Um, and, and so it's, it's a big project and, and we're trying to do it as streamlined as possible and, and kind of finding our way through there. Yeah. And, and you mentioned like commentary and stuff and is, is Dave doing that the entire season or will that change throughout time? I'm not sure if he's doing the whole season. I think he's at least doing the next few events with us. Um, and then, you know, we'll, we'll probably, I think the plan is to have some kind of rotating guest hosts, if you will. Um, and, you know, I think part of as we're developing this live streaming as well is also finding the the voice or, or I should say the tone we want for the series. Um, you know, I'm very good friends with Dave and him and I see eye to eye on, on many, many things. Um, and I really like the perspective that he brings, uh, into that commentary box, if you will, because again, he's a, he's a recent competitor. He understands what it takes to run a rally and, and he understands uh, at least enough of the technical side to be dangerous. So, um, so he's definitely good to have there. And, and, you know, as, as we develop and as he gets more comfortable, you know, we'll see where it goes. Um, but, you know, I think overall it's, uh, it's been a good step in the right direction and now it's just really working to refine it as we go event to event. Dave's great. I've had a few conversations with him. He's actually somebody I want, want to get on at some point on, on this podcast, but. Yeah, that's the hardest thing is nailing him down uh, when he's not an attractor. I can't tell you how many calls I, I call him and all I hear is machinery in the background and I'm like, all right, Dave, call me when you're off the tractor. <laughs> I, I I remember um I, I texted him I think last week and he read my text but he hasn't responded yet. I'm like wonderful. <laughs> well, I, like I said, Dave is also just hard to nail down, so there's definitely been times that's happened to me and then I call him again, he goes, Oh yeah, that's right. Sorry I forgot to call you back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that, and like this year, like I've talked with him uh about like his his rally sprint that he's running with under rally ready um mm-hmm. 
and I asked him if, you know, I could cover that stuff. And I talked to him about his, uh, his V8 powered, um, Chevy Colorado. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've ridden in that thing. Um, so yeah, the, the rally sprint series is under ARA. And so we actually just started doing rally sprints and, and kind of the first ones we've been doing was with Dave at rally ready. And, and for me, I just, that's such a cool concept to be able to do something like that. And, and something we are really hoping that other events pick up and take on just because you can do it with a really simple format. You know, we just want it to be flexible and approachable and um, you know, just a way for people to be able to get seat time and, and stage miles in their race cars. And and it's something I, I actually have an interesting covering. Uh, like I've had an interesting covering and I was actually meant to cover the first round of it until I couldn't get any photography for it. Mm, sure. Sure. <laughs> that is my issue with every, every event everywhere is photography. Yes. Yes. Well, it's, <laughs> it's uh, getting media you trust there and, and whatever you want for pictures, it's hard because again, we're racing over hundreds of miles and I've even talked with, uh, you know, some of the photographers that, that cover our rallies and it's like, you know, you do all the scouting and think you got a good spot picked out and then it turns out it sucks and you don't get any good pictures from it. I, 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 I talked with like this week, I've talked with like five, six different photographers. I've talked with, um, or, or not Oregon, well, I have Oregon's media coordinator. Uh, I actually talked to him yesterday. I talked with, uh, Olympus's media coordinator about stuff and yeah, it's, it's fun. Yes, that that is a, a part of the sport. I'm thankful I don't have to worry too much about. <laughs> it, 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 that is the part of my job that is like the hardest. Yeah. Um. It, it, it like I'm I'm just gonna get into a bit of like the prep that even goes into like me covering them. And pretty much, it's a month of just straight prepping. Yeah. For for two days. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you have to know the people that are entered, the cars that are entered in. I mean, it's, I think people underestimate the amount of work that it takes in to cover anything. And then you look at our national rallies that have, you know, 80 cars and it's like, that's 160 people and 80 different vehicles and, you know, national versus regional and five classes in each one. And uh, suddenly you've got, you know, 30 different storylines that you're trying to decide on what to do. Yeah, the, the, that was the fun of it, and that I, last year I made such a quick jump between covering the ARA to covering the WRC that I was like, "Well, crap, this isn't what I thought it was going to be." Yeah, um, it, you know, it 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 got fun at New Zealand when it was just like, "You've been penalized. You also got a penalty. You got a oh, penalty yeah. too." So that that was my fun, but um, yeah, no, in in terms of like. Even this year, I, I've seen a lot of growth with um, the coverage I do um, this year. And I and a, a lot – what I've seen is a lot of competitors have bought into it. Like, I know this – like, for Olympus, I have 10, 10 or 11 um, post-rally interviews with drivers. That's awesome. Which is five more than 100 Acre. Mm-hmm. That's so, fantastic, yeah. Yeah, and it, it's great. Uh, as I'm growing, I'm also getting to know people from within the sport, like such as yourself. Um, I'm also 
somewhat friends with the chair of Oregon Trail. Sure, uh, Karen. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she she actually emailed Belly at the one point <laughs> about <laughs> stuff. So so that that was that was how I got to know her. Yeah, that's funny. But yeah, it you know there there's just so many people who are so great with doing media, and there's even pe like I've had people tell me, oh yeah, this person doesn't like doing media stuff. Yep. Yep. I, I proceed to send them a text message. Oh yeah, sure, I'll do that. Yeah, no yeah. problem. Well, and you know, I think that's back to how great the rally community is as a whole, and and just how passionate all of us are to be a part of rally. Um, and so, at the end of the day, we're all passionate. And that's why we're here. So, yeah, and and you know, I seen somebody say the other, day, I think it was last week. Realistically, whether you're a competitor or a fan, you're all the same. Really, mm-hmm. it's just the drivers have a car and they have the skill enough to drive a car yeah. at yeah. speeds through a forest without, you know, crashing into a tree yet. Yeah, most, most of the time, <laughs> <laughs> most of the time, um, I, I'm not going to make the uh, subsequent joke about, you know, what the uh, other tragedy that has happened this year. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I know earlier you I mentioned bring the speeds down and this is something I thought about as well is um obviously we see this year just recently actually uh Craig Berin Craig Berin tra- yeah. passing away um <laughs> passing away at the pretest for Croatia mm-hmm. is does that also kind of not in a way justifying you guys bringing down the speeds, but also is that a reason why you guys wanted to bring down the speeds? I, I certainly not a justification. I would never look at it that way. Um, and at least from the information that I have on Craig Breen's crash, um, it was kind of a, a perfect storm in the wrong way. Um, and, you know, kind of regardless of the speed, uh, you know, the, the outcome may not have been different. Um, and that's just the way things go sometimes. And, and I know as a competitor, I think you always kind of look past the danger of the sports and, and, you know, there's never the thought of that. It could be me because then you're not going to get back in the car and compete. Um, and so you can never really have that type of fear when you're competing. Um, but, you know, switching over to the, sanctioning side and and you know this side of the sport that's something that is always on my mind and i i think i underestimated taking this position that you know in a way i'm now in charge of the safety of a lot of my friends um you know just because obviously a lot of people in the sport are are people that i've i've been friends with for a long time and and it's always hard to look at it from that perspective um but you know the the safety was certainly a part of the decision for the change in the rules um you know it was safety it was again kind of that arms race that it had kind of brewed from the aerodynamic um you know advancements and improvements that they were making on the cars and and then also i think talking to some of the teams and other manufacturers and and some pretty big teams that are involved in other motorsport not in rally the feedback that we continue to get and that was really common in talking to people outside of the sport was the amount of effort that it would take to develop a competitive car at the top of the sport and 
you know, them looking at take Subaru, for example, and, and knowing the speed that those cars were going and the amount of time, money and development into those cars was just unattainable um, for, for many, many teams. And, you know, these are teams with big budgets that are saying this because they're basically having to start from scratch. Um, whereas, you know, when we start having conversations of, well, you know, these rally two cars exist and, and they're basically available off the shelf. Uh, a lot of the feedback we got was that they would be interested in competing in these cars, uh, if they were able to compete for wins. Um, you know, obviously anyone that's racing is competitive to some level, but if you're going to be spending the, the time and the money and the effort for a top level car, your expectation is you want to be able to keep compete for a win, uh, whether that's realistic or not. And so, you know, kind of all those things combined really put the writing on the wall for us. And, and like I said, even feedback within the current competitor group um, kind of pushed us that direction to slow down or, or I should say lower the performance potential of that open class. Um, things happen and some things are completely unavoidable, no matter how much, safety equipment you have or any of that sort of stuff. Some things happen. It It's a product of life, unfortunately. And yeah. Well, just... and I, I think we're so fortunate to live in a time where, you know, a, a death in motorsport rally or otherwise is pretty rare. And, you know, you look even 30 years ago and it was so much more commonplace than it is now. Um, and, you know, like when I was competing, uh, you know, I was obviously married to my wife or even when we we're still dating. One of the things that she always told me is because she saw how I chose my personal safety equipment and how I worked with the team on developing um, the safety of the cars, that she was more comfortable with me racing because I wasn't looking at, you know, the bare minimum safety equipment and things like that. But, you know, with the advancements that have been made over the last few decades deaths and, and even serious injuries are, are, are pretty rare, but those things do happen. Um, you know, you look at Kubica and was that 2013 or 2011, whatever it was. And, and even we just had uh, a pair of, I believe they were Spanish driver and co-driver pass uh, this last weekend in competition um, to have these many injuries and, and deaths in, you know, we're in April of this year. Um, is is hard but i think the only thing we can do from it is is learn and and see if there are changes that we can make to safety regulations just to make sure that drivers and co-drivers are safe and and too it's just thinking of an example of safety equipment working as it should uh chem blocks crashed at olympus last year mm-hmm. that that's a or even when he, you know, ran into a deer, mm-hmm. that that's also a case of that, you know, working as it should. Because yeah, yeah I mean, if you think about it, he hit that deer and still finished the, the stage and got to the end. I mean, uh, all things considered, that car held up pretty well. <laughs> all things all things considered, that is a well-built car. I mean, at the end of the day, you, you shouldn't be able to hit a deer at, you know, 100 miles per hour and still drive off like it you know was just a squirrel yeah 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 and and, you know i think in 
my position in some ways and and probably even in your position looking at it you know from from a media standpoint you're almost desensitized to crashes just because again i mean most of our national events we have five or six people crash out um a, a weekend of of pretty good crashes you know you look at michael hooper and his lexus um you know, he rolled at the spectator point at hundred acre wood and had that car back together in basically a month and, and was at that test event for the WRC. So, um, you know, car construction is a, uh, is a big part of it, but, um, reality is crashes happen and, and it's what, what you do to prepare for it. And that can be personal or that can be how your car's built. Yeah. And obviously, like, as I've said before, things happen, it's rally you're you're driving through a forest at sometimes 100 miles per hour you know anything can anything can happen at that point and it's it's a part of the sport and you're gonna probably end up crashing a couple of dozen times throughout your career yeah hopefully not that many but depends on how many rallies you do um but yeah and and to the speeds you're talking about you know like i'll tell you um you know obviously we rolled back the open class cars but we also lowered uh the restrictor size on the limited cars because we were seeing limited cars hitting 130 miles an hour um you know on on some of the stage roads and and the risk goes up pretty exponentially as your speeds increase. And, and so that was kind of a, a tough pill to swallow is, is seeing what those cars were capable of with that 36 millimeter restrictor. And, and even the cars that were still on the 34 mil um, were, were up there. Well, and, and two, it's like now cars are able to be lighter and faster than what they were probably when those regulations were made. Because you have parts that can be even half as light as before now, and it, so it's you're cutting down on weight, and you're still having the same amount of power, but your car's still going faster. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we obviously have minimum weight, so that's that's part of it. But really, on on the power side of things, you know, as as regulations change, you see it at every level of motorsport. Is as regulations change, you know, the powers drop and. Uh, and and people get upset about it, um, but then new parts are developed and people figure out the tricks and kind of that uh, silver bullet, if you will, and and then the powers start to creep up again. Um, you know, it's like I said, you you see it all across motorsport. You know, you even look at the WC side of things, and and I think the hybrid cars make near 500 horsepower um, with those hybrid units and and a 1.6 liter turbo engine. Um, you know, those are, you know, getting closer to group B days. I know supposedly some group B cars are making 700 horsepower. Um, but, uh, I think a lot of those are unverified as far as what the true powers were, but, um, that's kind of the rate of progression of motorsport. And, you know, historically that's kind of the ebb and flow of how it goes is, uh, regulations change and, and power and speed drops. And then within a few years, suddenly they're, uh, going as fast as they were before. Well, you mentioned the Group B cars. Obviously, I don't think anything in terms of nowadays could hit Group B speeds with all the safety features. Because remember, in Group B days, there was pretty much no safety. 
Yeah, very little. But but see, a lot of people forget that. Um, yeah, the the Group B cars had a crap ton of horsepower and and really good straight line speed. But the Group A cars, which came immediately after the Group B, which was a huge pullback, um, you know, from from Group B and pretty sweeping regulation changes. Um, the Group A cars within a couple of years were faster on the stages as far as stage times go, and it's because what they lost in um, you know, sheer horsepower and, and straight line speed, tire technology had increased, suspension technology had gotten better, uh, you know, differentials and, and pretty much everything around the car was now better. And so they were capable of going faster. Yeah. And, not, and obviously things will continue to develop. I don't think people are done trying to develop new things. And, yeah. and obviously that'll lead to, increases in chain in increases in speed and as people learn the stages as well they'll also increase speed yeah yeah that that definitely plays into it and um you know you look at the the changes we made this year as far as the restrictor size and and the spec fuel that we went to last year and um you know those are really the first changes that have been made to um control horsepower in in quite a few years you know pre-ARA going back all the way to Rally America days. So um, it's always a very hard conversation to have because at the end of the day, everyone wants to go as fast as pop as possible. Um, and, you know, then there's also the money factor of it as well. But like I said, from us looking at it from our perspective and, and looking at the data that we saw for the cars over the last few years and, and talking to teams and, and talking to others interested in joining the sport. Um, it was changes that had to be done. Yeah. And obviously like in terms of money, you guys want as many people to join the sport as possible mm -hmm. and as easy as possible as well. So, because that helps grow the sport. Yeah. And I mean, we're, we're really sensitive to that. So, you know, it's, not something that we talk about very often because it's between us and events, but our, our license costs and our sanction costs have not increased in three years. And that's with insurance cost increasing. That's with, um, you know, our overall cost increasing and, and, you know, even bringing on rally safe, we eat more than half of that cost um, so that it doesn't have to be passed on to competitors and, and events. Um, and that's, possible through sponsorships i mean that's just the reality that that the sport is and what motorsport is in general is you know when we're able to get sponsorships like green apu coming on and um you know subaru being involved with the sport and some of our tire manufacturers um that's what helps keep the costs as low as possible for competitors and i i know somebody in one of the facebook groups i'm in about rally posted the other day that about what you just said that you know like entry costs hasn't haven't even really changed in years and that it costs a lot more to run an event than what the event was even making. Yeah. So and, and and I think that's the hard reality of the sport is you know, you look at it on the event side and the events are put together by volunteers. They are taking extra time out of their day and and you know, doing it because they love rally and they want to be able to see competitors compete um, on some of the great roads that we have around. And, and, you know, we talk with our organizers all the time and say, Hey guys, you need to be realistic with your budgets because 
we don't want you losing money and, and getting burnt out. Um, and, you know, I know Chris here from New England, um, you know, did a post on Facebook the other day and in trying to show some of the transparency as far as the expenses that they have uh, for putting on the events. And, and I think part of it is an education for competitors, but, um, uh, you know, I, I never think there's any malicious intent behind it. I think just part of it comes from not understanding and and thinking that the events are making a ton of money and ARA is making a ton of money and and it's just the competitors footing the bill. And and I'll tell you from the insurance side of things, motorsport insurance right now is a mess. Um, there's fewer and fewer companies getting involved and and that's why our events work really, really hard with us to put on as safe of events as possible um, and, and bringing in technology like rally safe and, and investing in things like that. That is what is helping keep this sport going. Every little thing that goes into the sport makes a difference. Mm-hmm. Even on the media side, like we're doing here. <laughs> Even on the media side. And that, that <laughs> that's why I actually wanted to start doing like stuff like this and, and the writing portion, like that's why this year, as I previously mentioned, Dirtfish doesn't do much for coverage. So this year I picked up a lot of the coverage that they aren't doing anymore. And I think I'm actually the only one doing it, which is fun. Um, well, it, it's, it's no pressure. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it, it, it definitely is a noticeable thing and, my my point is is it's like a lot of people don't realize how much effort needs to be put into stuff like this. As I previously mentioned, this took not this, but preparation for an event takes about for a Olympus, month. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what doesn't get mentioned is I don't get paid much. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to release my pay scale. <laughs> but let, let's just say it's it's a lot less than you would think. Yeah. Um. So you know that that's the ultimate point of this is, and even like trying not to release too much here. I've had conversations with higher ups at Belly Up about sponsor, like potentially sponsoring drivers, and I've just gotten turned down because they don't see much in the sport so Mm -hmm. it's unfortunate but well i mean that's why we're trying to push the changes we are now you know a a big part of the money that we got from green apu like i said went to the live stream but there's other more uh let's say show centric things we've invested in as well um you know we got the ceremonial start trailer that we have which helps haul our equipment around but also it's got a built-in pa system and built-in podium so that we can do driver interviews you know at uh park expose and and certainly at the end of the event and um you know these are investments that we're trying to do uh to to get more eyeballs on the sport and and to kind of push some of those sponsorship dollars to uh, to help fund some of the other things that we want to do. And, and again, I, I think, you know, when, when we talked at the beginning of the year with an ARA, uh, one of the big points we did discuss was not wanting to have to raise prices. 
at, at least on our end. And that was us looking at the revenue that we had coming in, you know, not only from licenses and, and that side of things, which usually is pretty much directly covering insurance cost, but um, you know, what other investments we're having into the sport to, to keep it kind of status quo for competitors and, and still give us the ability to make some of the investments we've talked about. Um, I know you mentioned pre-show that there were some changes after the incident involving Ken Block at um, New England last year, mm-hmm. the uh, dust issue mm-hmm. on the power stage. Um, so what changes were made from that? I, I think it was the overall approach to the power stage in general. Um, you know, last year was the first year that we had uh, the power stage for national competitors paying out points. Um, so, you know, overall your top five competitors get points and then your winner of each class, uh, gets class points. And, you know, we thought it was a really fun concept and, and brought some attention towards the end of events, you know, even if there wasn't necessarily close battles coming to the end. Um, but ultimately going into LSPR, the championship was as close as it was because of the power stage. Um, you know, Brandon had done better on the individual power stages than Ken had, while Ken had done better at the events. Uh, but the end result was it was winner take all coming in Dell's PR. And I think part of what we learned from, from New England and, and talking with Ken and talking with some of the other teams was we really did have to look at the power stage um, by itself uh, kind of separate from everything because outside of events as a whole, that's the only other way you can get championship points. And so giving a bit more scrutiny and where it is within the itinerary and, um, and, you know, what stages are being used, uh, it really did kind of shift our perspective a little bit. Um, and that's, you know, as we talked about the national versus regional, um, you know, kind of loop, uh, the split is centered around the power stage. Um, you know, we talked with the events and, and we kind of told them the importance of what the power stage was for the national championship and that it decided it last year. Um, and so kind of the end result of the discussion was that the national car should be the one running the power stage. That way, if something happens, it's only affecting the national cars. Um, You know, they're the only ones affecting competition. And it also gives us a bit more flexibility to do things like, uh, you know, extra dust minutes. Um, So for example, pretty much all of our events are doing uh, at least two minute windows between all the cars for, for the power stage. So I think that was kind of the big thing we got out of it was just the importance of the power stage overall, because it was paying out championship points and, and kind of some of the different ways and and tools on our belt, if you will, um, that we can kind of protect that power stage and, and make sure the competition on it was as fair as possible. Um, you know, at the end of the day, dust has been part of rally for, uh, the existence of rally and will always be a part of it, but, uh, obviously it's, it's our job and, and the event's job to, um, kind of protect competition as best we can. Well, and, and, you know, the, the issue with dust is, especially like last year at New England, cause it was bad, um, is just driver visibility and overall driver safety. Cause mm-hmm. if they can't see where they're going, 
they're pretty much relying solely on notes, and not everybody has completely great notes. Yeah. So I, yeah, that's it. It's interesting because depending on who you talk to, uh, the conversation of dust being a safety issue or not um, varies because at the end of the day, the driver's right foot's controlling the speed. And I think that's the balance between self-preservation and, and competition, right? Is uh, I can tell you some of the drivers I've worked with over the years are much more comfortable in the dust than I am. Uh, and there was definitely some pretty scary rides that I had <laughs> through the dust, um, you know, making sure that I'm still calling notes so they know where they're going. So it, it's that fine line where, if you're still on maximum attack and, and trying to drive through the dust, um, then, then yes, there, there could be safety concerns, but at the end of the day, you have your own fate, uh, in your own hands. And, and really it's up to us to make sure that you don't have to make that decision or, or give you every opportunity so that that decision does not have to come up. Um, you know, we, we can't control dust. We can't control wind. And I can tell you with the way dust hangs, you know, I've, been at new England when the dust was really bad and you could have went to five minute windows for, for some of the stages and it wouldn't have made a difference. Well, I mean, you guys can just get water trucks and just, you know, put them on the stages, but that's a lot of money that nobody has. It's, it's also not realistic (laughs) having, having worked at dirt tracks um, and, and been a part of say like rally cross events, uh, you can run a water truck and soak the road pretty good, and it lasts about ten cars. And and then also, I mean, you talk about just the sheer mileage you would need uh, a whole fleet of water trucks for one stage. Yep, yeah, and that that that's, that sounds like a whole lot of money. Um, or just not even possible. <laughs> I mean, how how many areas do you know of that have a dozen water trucks available? <laughs> and and the time to fill them. You know, one of those water trucks takes uh, upwards of 20, 30 minutes just to fill. And, you know, if you're running two, two stages and 60 cars each, again, the water's really only going to last for that first 10 cars. And, and then you're back to square one. Um, yeah. And so... You mentioned last year was the first year the power stage was brought on. Why was it brought on? I I think it was just that excitement, um, you know, to, for the events and and a promotional opportunity and and a storyline opportunity and and also for the competitors to have something interesting to compete for, um, you know. Obviously, I think it's very obvious where I got the concept from because the WRC has been running it for a few years. Um, and and so kind of saw what they did and, and the interest that comes around the power power stage and, and saw that it would be a good fit for our competition. Um, you know, on a much smaller scale, uh, Travis always had his dollar bet at every single event and he would pick a stage and, and tell the other guys in the top class and said, okay, this is a stage, uh, you know, whoever wins gets a dollar from everyone. And uh, I think ultimately he ended up choosing the power stage for the events, but um, it, it's the same thing. You know, the, the drivers always want something to compete for and, and really it's us giving them as many opportunities as possible to do that. And sometimes towards the end of events, you know, your gaps end up long. And so people aren't really racing each other anymore. Um, and so this is to add some, some kind of intrigue and competition towards the end of the event. Last year was, was fun watching the power stage because it was always, you could always tell drivers 
for the most part, if they weren't in a direct battle, the stages before they laid off yep. to preserve tires and preserve their car so that they didn't crash out completely before the power stage. And then on the power stage, it was just all up balls flat out. Yep. Yeah, yeah and that's that's definitely something we saw too. Um, and and that was also part of why we had to shift our perspective a little bit when we were looking at the power stage by itself. I, I always referred to the power stage last year as Ken Block was cursed on it because he never seemed to do good on it until like the end of the year. <laughs> yeah, he, he definitely had some bad luck, whether it was, uh, you know, 100 Acre or, or New England or whatever the case was. But um, that's just the nature of the sport, unfortunately, right? Um, so last year, Travis Pastrana went winless for the first time in, I think, ever. Um, what was that like for the competition to just see Pastrana go winless? I I think it was tough to see. Um, you know, I've been a fan of Travis for, for a long time. Obviously he's been running rally in the U S for gosh, maybe I don't want to say because it'll age both him and I, um, but (laughs) you know, he, and, and he's always been such a competitor and, and always towards the pointy end of the field and, and I, I think it was hard because I talked with him a couple of times over the course of the of last year and and, you know, some of the other members at Subaru. And um, it was just, I think, a bit puzzling. Um, you know, he he felt like he was performing well, but, you know, you had Brandon in, in an equal car and and was pretty much handing it to him the whole season. So um Hopefully we get to see him back and get to see him in form, but uh, we'll we'll see over the next couple of years. I think last year definitely shook him, and then what happened with Ken shook him more. Um, obviously, I can't speak for Travis because I'm not Travis. Um, but yeah, I do definitely feel like that had a a factor in it. Mm-hmm him not returning as well as him just wanting to do other things. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I think part of the other thing was spending time with family. Um, you know, having known Travis for a number of years, uh, his travel schedule is insane. <laughs> I, I I don't know uh, how many days he spent at home last year, but it was probably less than 30. <laughs> um, and, and so I think, it, it was kind of reflecting and, and looking and, you know, he's got a young family and, and his kids are growing. And I certainly understand that perspective with my own young, young family too. So um, your priorities shift as you age. And, and I think that's somewhat inevitable. And, um, you know, certainly the, the tragedy with Ken, I think has made people reflect a bit differently and, and understand their own morality and, or sorry, mortality um, which is a very difficult thing to come to grasp with, especially when you've spent your whole life doing absolutely insane things. Well, I mean, you want to talk about insane things. What hasn't Travis Trana done that's insane? Right, right. <laughs> he, I, I even think... his Jim Connor videos just they look so much more brutal than uh just violent than than what Ken ever did. I think Travis has broken every bone in his body and then more and then some. Just about, I, yes. <laughs> I I think that guy has broken bones that he doesn't even know existed until he yeah. broke them. Yeah. 
Well, and and some people forget, but at the beginning of last year, I think it was in January, um, you know, he had that pretty severe accident base jumping and and pretty much hopped into a rally car only a couple of months after that. So um, it's just a testament to how tough someone like Travis is to have lived his whole life injured, it seems like, uh, because of, of obviously everything he did in motocross and, and on the bikes and, uh, and even all the crazy stunts and things he's done in cars. Well, if I do recall correctly as well, he did drive at one point a rallycross car with a uh, broken leg, which sounds fun. Yeah, the, the story I think you may be remembering is he actually drove a rally with a busted ankle. And so they were strapping his leg to the cage um, is, is my recollect recollection of, of that. Um, I but, think, yeah, I, I think the one I'm thinking of is X games, something or other. The last gotcha. year he actually did rally with Subaru hmm. before quitting and sure. then Higgins was brought on. Yeah. I think that was the one I can't remember though. I'll have to ask, I'll have to ask Dan when I have him on yeah. next week. Because <laughs> I get to interview uh, Subaru's director of motorsports next week, which is, which is fun. Yes, yeah. Dan, Dan and I obviously talk pretty often. Uh, fortunately, most of the time, friendly conversations. But, uh, you know, him him and the team, they're they're great guys and, and obviously just as passionate about rally as anyone else is, so... And, and Dan's been involved in rally at a high level for, for a very long time. Well, I mean, he's worked with Subaru, he's worked with Ken, so yep. he, he's got some stories under his belt that I'm yep. hoping to get some of. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I mentioned David Higgins just moments ago. Um, what is Higgins' impact been on the sport, I guess? Well, I mean, obviously he was champion for what seven years six years however many years it was uh driving for subaru and and you know was the top driver in the sport for a long time and so um he he just as everyone else is passionate about rally that's why we're all here and so uh he was always in the conversations and and trying to push where the sport was going and and his involvement and vermont's involvement so um I still talk to Dave every now and again because I know he loves competing in the U.S. and um, and is trying to find a way to get back to competing in the U.S. So hopefully we can see him this year, or next year, back in a ride and and uh, kind of showing the new kids on the block what it means to go fast. Well, and I I had talked to David, and he's actually on after Olympus. This is actually no. It, Kings is the next episode. Dan's the episode after. My apologies on that. My my schedule is completely uh, wonky right now, so it, it's <laughs> it's fun. I I I have I have interviews for this booked until like after Southern Ohio. Oh geez. Well, I'm glad I was able to sneak back in then, or else uh, we might have been doing an end of the season recap. Yeah, I I was like when you texted me, I was like, yeah, I can fit you in here. I'll I'll just make an episode out of absolutely nothing and be fine with it because you were already scheduled to come on beforehand. So I was like, I'm not gonna delay that any longer, <laughs> you know. And especially because the ARA is uh, 
rules are a hot topic right now. So yeah, yeah, as as we expected. I mean, anytime you have a major change, it's uh, it creates conversation. So for sure, and and obviously, you can't please everybody, no matter how hard you try. Yeah, you know, I I don't necessarily like that perspective. That's obviously the reality, but. Um, at the end of the day, I I want to make sure the competitors are enjoying themselves, but you know it's making sure the events are taken care of and and sponsors are taken care of, and that it's run within kind of the safety margins that we're looking for. So uh, there's a lot of people that we have to answer to, and and it's trying to make as many of them as happy as possible. And you know I've I've said it before on on different podcasts and interviews, but really for me it's it's trying to please as many people as i can but it also means weighing all of the different perspectives and and understanding what each decision who it affects and how it affects them and um and just seeing if it's worth to move that direction or not yeah and obviously everything like yeah i don't know what i'm doing with this um Anyway, I'm just gonna scrap that idea. Uh, what's that? Well, and in, in I mean, really, to your question about you know rules and and making changes and and things like that, it's sometimes I I think people just assume that we just go like, hey, this sounds like a cool rule, and and that's how it comes to light, and. That's just really not the case. You know, I, I mentioned earlier looking at the rally safe data and, and the information that we get from there. And, you know, even talking about the restrictor change, it's, you know, there's there's no magic sauce or, or anything that people are doing. It's, it's pretty well known uh, what power is made with what restrictor and how. Um, but, you know, even, even then, as we were talking about restrictor sizes, um, we had several different scenarios that we had worked through with trying to keep the 34 millimeter restrictor, um, for not only the open class, but, but also the limited, um, you know, the reality was for the limited cars, the 36 millimeter restrictor had to go. Um, there's really no way around that just because the amount of power that was possible and being made, um, with the 36 millimeter restrictor, but, you know, fortunately we have a lot of contacts within the industry and being able to look at, um, you know, different, uh, dyno graphs and, and compressor maps and, um, you know, all, all the different data that's available to us to, to make those decisions, uh, so that hopefully we do right by the competitors and, and also for the safety and, and the competition of the sport. And, you know, you look at, um, like the bodywork changes we made and fortunately, since we're a part of USAC, uh, kind of, it opens up our contacts as far as who we can actually talk to. And, and we're able to coordinate with some pretty high level aerodynamicists for some, some pretty big teams, um, you know, outside of rally to help, develop and and understand what the changes we were looking to do um, to the bodywork side of things and the impact it would have. Uh, you know, obviously, I, I said before, kind of our, our direction we wanted to go was the same performance potential as the Rally 2 cars. And so making sure the changes that we were doing uh, would move us towards that direction and, and then also kind of understanding and, and um, looking at 
what would be the negative repercussions of that. So. Um, obviously you, me- you mentioned things like restrictors and everything. Mm-hmm. How, how, so Sam Albert put a Ferrari engine in Subaru <laughs> alone. That is, that, that sounds like a Dave thing to do. Um, like completely like that, that's a Dave thing to do anyway. Um, in terms of restrictors, what does that thing need? Because I, I, I yeah, that is uh, a bit bigger than your standard uh, super engine. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely different. And, and looking at the way power works between uh, naturally aspirated cars and, and turbo cars is very different. And, you know, for, for a case like Sam's, that car um, would make less horsepower than you, or sorry, would make less torque than you think, uh, but makes a lot more horsepower where pretty much your restricted turbo engines are, are flipped. They make a ton of torque and, and not much horsepower. So really it was, you know, he supplied his um, dyno graphs and, and, you know, we talked with him about weight and realistically what his car was going to weigh. Um, and so kind of took a couple of different approaches. He's going to be a little bit above minimum weight, um, and, uh, you know, he was planning on keeping the engine stock anyways. And, and so the engine has to stay stock. Um, and, and then we're going to see where it ends up as far as, uh, restrictor plates and, and some of the things of that nature. Um, you know, at, at the end of the day, that's a cool car and I'm excited to see that on the stages and, and hear some of the sound clips for it, but, uh, it's, it's up to us to be able to, preserve the competition and, and, um, you know, try and stay ahead of, uh, say someone seeing what Sam does and going, Oh, well, if I take what Sam does and do this and this, then, you know, I'm going to have something even faster. And, and so it's just trying to kind of stay ahead of that, but still giving the option and the ability for different cars to come compete in the series. You know, I think that's something that I don't like from the FIA is, every car is a five-door hatchback. And while being a person who writes rules, that would sure make my life a lot easier. (laughs) It's also not something I want to see. You know, I want to see the Pat Moros with their V8 Sonics and and Sam with the Ferrari engine and and Al's uh, V8, you know, um, that he used to compete in. And uh, well, I guess I just said, I just want to see V8s and everything. So that's a very American thing to say, but, but, but really it's just the diversity of the types of cars that we have in the series. So if you want V8s and everything, I, I think we both know a guy who can, who can, who can help with that. Yes. Yes. He, he lives in Texas and his name is Dave. <laughs> well, and, and maybe that's why I like the uh, V8 supercars in Australia so much. <laughs> Cause that racing is always pretty incredible. I made a joke back when uh, Mora was meant to be competing in uh, in Hundred Acre, and then he pulled out. Um, about that, we have Dave in a in a Chevy Colorado with a V8. Him in a Chevy Sonic. So who's gonna take a uh, like Chevy Equinox and put a V8 in it? Oh gosh! <laughs> <laughs> Some people did not take too kindly to that one, but you yeah, know, yeah. But, but I think that's, again, the cool thing that we have with our sport in the U.S. is, you know, the different engine swaps and, and oddball cars that you're not going to see anywhere else in the world. And, and 
any time we're talking about rules and, and looking at rules, that's something I'm very sensitive to um, because I, I don't want to lose that character that we have in the U.S. And that's one of the things that, that makes the U.S. unique is you can pretty much build whatever the law is that's within spec and you can race it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'll tell you, trying to write bodywork rules is very difficult when I'm trying to write it for, uh, you know, effectively every model of car out there. So, so you're effectively saying I could take a Volkswagen Beetle, put a V8 engine in it, and as long as it's up to subs, I can drive it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. As long as it meets minimum weight. I mean, there's there, there's not a whole lot else as far as uh, restrictions there. You know, your body work would have to be near OEM. But that's, you know, it's funny if you look at our rule book for the two wheel drive uh, open class, there is exactly one rule that's not body work. And that is it has to be two wheel drive. <laughs> that, 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 that sounds like a given I, I mean I would be concerned if somebody pulled up in a, a four wheel drive car and said I want to compete in two wheel well if the rule's not there they could <laughs> that, that's that's how it works I, I, I couldn't imagine your face if somebody actually did that I, I don't think that person would be able to keep a straight face for long enough to actually say that sentence though Oh, you, you'd be surprised some of the uh, rule requests that we get. <laughs> it's, you know, I, I there's a reason why my email and my phone number is available just about everywhere I can put it so that people can ask me and, and you know, request things and make recommendations. But uh, there, there are definitely times where I kind of have to read an email a couple of times and go, all right, is he being serious? <laughs> And, and and I'll be 100% honest, when we first talked to Sam about the Ferrari, I was like, really? That's what you want to do? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> when I first read that, I was like, wait a minute, what? That, that's got to be clickbait, right? Yeah. But I uh, no, hats off to him, man. He, he figured it out and he put together. And, you know, from the videos I've seen of it this far, uh, looks like a pretty cool car to drive. I, I'm just surprised that thing fit in the engine bay. Yeah, yeah, that that's that is definitely surprising. You know, he had to relocate the radiator um, because obviously the the V8 was a lot longer of an engine than the Subaru. But um, I mean, even the fact that he was able to do that is uh, takes a lot of blood, sweat, and tears to do that. So, yeah, and like when I seen that, I was like, he's gonna have a lot of issues with just even putting that thing in the car, let alone driving it and making it drive and yeah somehow he's done it and well the car and hasn't broken and i mean for us looking at it too it's sam is a is a pretty talented driver so we'll we'll see where he finishes this weekend but you know if that car holds together i think he's got the potential to have some pretty good results i, I think he has some a potential to challenge uh Samuk at some points so that, that should be fun yeah I am very excited to look at the data because at the end of the day, I'm a bit of a data junkie. So <laughs> that, that'll definitely be a fun bit of data for for you to look at, and yeah, and yeah, the, the tool the tool that I have for um, you know looking at stage performance is you know I'm able to take the logs out of the GPS units, um, which is different than what we see on the tracking side of things. 
and I can actually do overlays on the stage. And, you know, again, I can see braking performance. I can see uh, cornering speed, acceleration. I can see pretty much at any point on the stage, I can see the um, rate of acceleration. I can see how fast they're going. It's, it's, I, I can get lost in the data pretty quick. <laughs> so, so it sounds like you have a fun job that is very somewhat complicated to understand from a person like from my perspective. It's it's mostly fun. We'll put it that way. <laughs> I remember the other day I seen somebody's dino chart and I was like, huh? I all I I my response completely was. All I know is the, is the dawn line is less than the or the saw line is less than the dawn line, and that means worse. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, and and that is what comes with the restrictor change, unfortunately. So that's where I have the. Uh, I certainly won't say pleasure of being the bad guy because it's it's not fun doing that. But um, you know that was the the direction that we went. I, I'm sure you have gotten some colorful words uh, from from the rule changes. I, I, oh, yeah, I, yeah. And I, I mean, I, I I I can tell people that they have to have their shoe on their right foot, and and I'm going to get colorful emails from that. Um, and and I mean, that's why really it's making sure myself and and all the other guys involved with ARA um, take that feedback and and actually take it to heart and. Um, you know, there's been uh, quite a few changes that we've made because of competitor feedback. And while I know a lot of people think we're not listening, um, we are just because, you know, we don't make the decision that they're happy with doesn't mean that we didn't reflect on and, and look at the scenario that they proposed. Yeah. And I know there are some people unhappy. I know one of the first people one of the first drivers i interviewed who is a new r5 driver this year was slightly unhappy with you guys after um sandblast this year he received an email and he didn't like it much uh about like novice status or whatever and yeah oh myron i'm gonna refrain from saying yes but yes (laughs) (laughs) yes that that will be who yeah yeah See yeah. again, I pay attention to everything. <laughs> he, he was like, the, the ARA somehow knows when you do whatever. And it was like, and I was like, yeah, they, they somehow do. And I was like, that, like last year I was so worried. Like I was like, am I even allowed to cover the ARA like legitimately? Or someday I'm just going to at least see a le- cease and desist letter. <laughs> just going to cease and desist. <laughs> in, in the mail saying you are not allowed to cover this anymore. And, but I, I was like, I read over your guys' regulations on that sort of stuff yeah. like 16 yeah. times. And I was like, yeah. it doesn't clearly state anywhere that I can't. So Well, that, can't. And, and what you ended up doing was the right thing. You reached out to me and, and I got you in touch with the right person. And, and that's, that's all that needs to happen. I mean, it's a uh, response. So, it, you know, ARA is the bad guy in the sky, but at the end of the day, there's two of us. <laughs> You know, there, there's only two of us that work even close to full time. And, um, you know, the, the rest of the team, like Doug Nagy, our technical director, he's obviously plugged in and, and works hard on the series stuff. And, um, you know, we have a couple other people that we have more on a part-time basis as well. But um, it's, uh, I mean, at the end of the day, it's us trying to do right by the sport. Yeah, And, and, that, and that means something different to everyone. And, and that's where it's hard. 
Yeah, and obviously trying to make sure everything's done correctly. And as, as you said, I contacted you this year, uh, obviously with the coverage bump and so on. Because I knew there were going to be a lot more eyes. And I knew if you guys hadn't seen me already, me covering the stuff, you guys for sure were now. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so I wanted to make sure everything was squared away with that, that I wasn't going to receive a cease and desist letter in the mail or something. <laughs> Or, you know, a colorfully worded email from somebody within the competition. Um, Yeah, yeah. Because that's not something I want to present to my higher-ups when I'm already, you know, barely making it by by doing this and then just say, oh, yeah, I got got a colorfully worded email, a cease and desist letter, and oh, yeah, now we're being sued. (laughs) Well, I I don't think it would ever come to that case, or that (laughs) point, but... I, I think even, even though I, I did receive a cease and desist letter from someone recently or within the last six months, I should say that was unexpected, but uh, you know, that that's how it goes sometimes. I, I, I keep an eye on my email. So, you know, my, everything I need, everything anybody needs to contact me is completely public besides my phone number. I keep that separate because I don't want to be receiving a phone call from somebody in like Jamaica at two o'clock in the morning. <laughs> Well, my, mine is public, and I can tell you that it's not fun. <laughs> but there's a reason I text with you on Facebook, and that's because I know I have a chance of getting a response, and yeah. Um, yeah, speaking of Jamaica, I only I, I actually know somebody from Jamaica who, who actually drives race cars for a living. So Nice. <laughs> you may have heard of him. He, he is named Fraser McConnell. Oh, yeah, yeah. I know Fraser. I, I did uh, so you know ARA is owned by USAC and USAC uh, sanctions the Nitro Rallycross stuff and so I've done work with that series as well. Nitro is great. I'm trying to get their co-founder on one of their co-founders. Yeah. Um, Brad or Brett Clark, who I actually am somewhat friends with. So nice. <laughs> yeah, that I, I I know a few people from within there and. Um, I know all, I emailed last week with Oliver Erickson trying to get him on. Mm-hmm. Still haven't received a response. The story of my life is receiving no response emails. Yeah, well, it's it's hard when it's effectively cold calls too, right? Pretty much. And it's, I I think within a week I sent out close to two dozen emails. I maybe received three back. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's the fun part of my life and it's like, you know, it's whatever, you know, if people want to do stuff, it's available. There's ways to contact me. It's not like I'm the most unreachable person ever. Yep. Yep. Well, and I think especially as you're kind of carving your own way and, and getting known in the sport, it's, it just takes a little bit of time until uh, people know you're legitimate and, and actually pick up the phone or answer that email. Uh, that, and speaking about that, like I was even like first episode was Oliver Solberg, and when um, his mother responded mm-hmm. to my email about that because she does his management, yep. I was like, okay, well that that was completely unexpected. I was just like, out of all the people I emailed about doing this and even just getting interviews, Solberg was the last person I expected to respond. Yeah. No, the the Solbergs are amazing. Um, You know, I got to know them a little bit when Oliver was competing over here. And, uh, you know, I was still competing at the time. So uh, it gives you a different perspective when you're out there on the stages with them. But, um, you know, him, his dad and his mom were were nothing but amazing. And, and, 
it was fun having him over here. So he he's definitely a fun guy to talk to and and knowledgeable. Like he's mm-hmm. somebody who I'm real like personally really high on and he knows that and his father knows that because he's like the few my Instagram posts about all over. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it's fun and it's it's always fun and now it's fun even just having Oliver follow me on Instagram and it's like at some point I want to have his dad on here because I feel like I could sit there and pick out his brain for hours and hours on end. Oh yeah. I, I feel like there's so many corners of his brain that are just like, yeah, I know this and I know this and I know that. And it's like, yeah, I didn't know that even existed. So <laughs> there's that, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. 